regard, but they're very good. All right. If you go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to begin reading this morning in verses 1 through 6. Continue on in our sermon series on how Jesus is better. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the, the very Word of God. We thank you for all of its precepts, its wisdom, its law, the, the rich history and the legacy and the heritage that can be found in your Word. But more than anything this morning, Lord, we pray that we would find Jesus there. We would know the God of our salvation. We would know uh, the marvelous Messiah who has come to take away our sins to live the life that we could not live in obedience unto you, to give us that justifying, sanctifying grace that is at work within us even now. Lord, may your Spirit be at work in our midst to know, to love, to worship, and to serve Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 27 years before the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center collapsed, on September 11, 2001, uh, the highlight of those Twin Towers occurred in 1974 when a Frenchman named Philippe Petit <laughs> committed the artistic crime of the century when he strapped a cable from one tower to the other and proceeded to walk back and forth across the towers 1,400 feet above the street. Uh, he not only walked back and forth, at times he was dancing, sometimes he was kneeling, and at one point he was lying down on the cable itself as the wind was blowing back and forth. Just a tremendous feat. Of course, when the police finally got a hold of what he was doing, they were able to coax him off when it began to rain and then escorted him out of the building. And he explained to the reporters afterwards that he could hear all the people down below cheering him on, but he couldn't see them. And the reason for that is every high-wire performer understands very well that you always have to keep your eyes looking forward and never, ever look down, or else you're going to fall. And so the same mistake was made by the Apostle Peter. We talked about that last week when Jesus commanded him to walk to him on the Sea of Galilee and for a brief moment, courageously, victoriously, he was walking on water. But then he took his eyes off of Jesus when the wind and the waves began to whip up and he began to sink. That's the concern that the author of Hebrews has 
for these Jewish Christians who have made the, the good profession of faith, they now are tempted to look away from Jesus because of the persecution that they're undergoing at this particular moment somewhere in Italy, probably just outside of Rome. And instead of looking to Jesus, they're tempted to look back to Moses, not understanding that the law of Moses only condemns. It cannot save them. And so he is writing to them again to show them how Jesus is better than Moses. As you can imagine, no one ranked higher in the understanding of the Jews than the prophet Moses. It was Moses, after all, who had led God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of 400 years in chains. He had led them out after calling down 10 plagues upon the Egyptians, just magnificent acts of God's power. He was the one who had given them the Ten Commandments and all the law of God on Mount Sinai. It was He who oversaw the construction of the tabernacle and the institution of all the sacrifices. It was He who was the author of the first five books of the Bible. It was He who was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament with whom God spoke mouth to mouth. Not through visions, not through dreams, but directly. And that was, as we read earlier, Numbers chapter 12. And then when he finally gets to the near end of his life, the Lord takes his life and buries him in an anonymous grave on Mount Nebo so that the people would not be tempted to worship his dead body. That's how highly the people thought of Moses. Not only did they honor him, they revered him almost as much as they revered God. And so... We're seeing again, the author of Hebrews is trying to show that Jesus is better. And that if you turn away from Jesus, you're putting your eternal security in jeopardy. Because if you turn away from Christ, you're turning away from the Lord Himself. That's his point this morning. So I, I want to elaborate on that main point that he has uh, by breaking up into three subpoints. Um, if you're taking notes, it would sound something like this. He's exhorting them as well as exhorting us to continue to hold on to Jesus in these three specific ways. First, through our confession of Christ. Second, through our confidence in Christ. And third, through our consideration and concentration on Christ. So first, we're commended to hold on to our confession of faith of Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, when we confess our faith, we're not simply, simply stating uh, some truths about who Christ is, but it's always to be accompanied by our faith in who He is and what He has done for us. In Matthew chapter 16, I, I was just going over the first of one of the communicant classes uh, with some of the teens and kids this morning. The question that Jesus asked His disciples in Matthew chapter 16 is a question that every single individual has to answer at some point in time. And the question is, who do you say that I am? Jesus wants to know. Some were saying that he was John the Baptist. Some were saying that he was Elijah reincarnate. But he wants to know, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Jewish Christians would have agreed with Peter at that point. Uh, they also had professed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. But as you know, Confessing the name of Christ in this way could cause problems, and it certainly did in the ancient church. 
we find in John chapter 9, verse 22, that the Jews had agreed that any Jew who confessed the name of Christ was immediately to be thrown out of the synagogue. Immediately. If any of them dared to say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, immediately they were cast out and they were disfellowshipped and they were shamed before their brothers and their sisters and their mother and their father and all of their relatives. That was how it was treated. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 42, we're told that many of the authorities began to believe in Jesus, but they didn't confess it because they were afraid that the Pharisees would find out about it and they too would be put out of the synagogue. And we think of it later on in the Gospels, we find out that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were two such individuals who were authorities and who had believed in Christ and yet they did not confess his name until later on after he had died and would be resurrected. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, most of you know uh, these verses well, it, it states that not only must someone believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they must confess the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord as well. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Um, it's very important, I think, to point out at this point, there, there are some, I think, probably perhaps even in the church this morning, who have never joined a church and publicly confessed the name of Christ. You say you believe in Jesus, but you've never gone before His people and testified, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord and done just what Morgan has done. You have no right to claim the promises of God if you have not publicly confessed the name of Jesus. They go hand in hand. Paul, uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, in the context when he asked that question, who do you say I am? He says in Mark chapter 8, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. He's saying this to say, just as you have confessed my name just now and who I am, every other person who's going to follow me has to confess my name publicly as well. And that's why we see the Apostle Paul is even reminding Timothy. Timothy's afraid. We don't know all the reasons for why he's afraid. But Paul is his mentor, and he's telling him, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, you made a public profession of faith. They all heard it. We all heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now live up to that confession. Because it's the confession that distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. They may believe it, but until they confess it, especially in a culture in which we're seem like we're going in that direction, more and more where Christianity is persecuted, if someone doesn't confess his name publicly, it's not the same. So, of course, the recipients of this letter, they all had made that profession. They all had publicly been kicked out of the synagogue. More than likely, wherever they were living. And now, the persecution has gotten so hot that they're beginning to second-guess that confession and wanting to trace back toward Moses. And we'll see all throughout this letter, again and again, he'll keep bringing this up. The very next chapter, he'll say, that he's exhorting them to hold fast to their confession. They made it once. He says, now hold fast to it. 
Same thing he says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Again, hold fast to your confession without wavering. Because they're tempted to go back on that confession. Why? Because Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, they're now acting ashamed of him. It just doesn't make sense. But what is that confession? What, what are they confessing particularly? Uh, in this particular passage, he, there's, there's a lot to it, but he wants to explain one portion to, to counter, to, to compare Moses to Jesus. In verse 1, he speaks of Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, normally when we hear the word apostle, we think of the 12 apostles, or we think of the apostle Paul, who God revealed himself uh, to, uh, to him in the vision to preach to the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. But uh, the word apostle is a very generic term. It basically just means someone who's sent out on behalf of another person with their authority. So in fact, the Sanhedrin had apostles. And if you remember, Saul of Tarsus was an apostle of the Sanhedrin before Christ made him his apostle. He went out on behalf of the Sanhedrin with, with their letter in hand saying, I have the authority to put these people in jail. Well, Jesus himself in this passage, you'll notice here, strangely, is said to be an apostle of God himself. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly referred to be an apostle of God. Uh, but what we do know, there are a couple of passages in, in the Gospel of John in which Jesus says this himself, uh, using a different uh, terminology. In John chapter 10, verse 36, speaking of himself, Jesus uses the verbal form of the word apostle in the Greek when he says the Father had sent him into the world. And then he uses that same form once again in John chapter 20, verse 21, when Jesus calls his own apostles, he says it to them this way, as the Father has sent me, in other words, as the Father has apostled me, so I now apostle you. I send you out with that same authority. And so in this case, the writer of Hebrews is making plain Christ's apostleship to compare it to the apostleship of Moses. Again, we don't normally think of Moses as an apostle, but it basically means someone who's, go, who's sent out to speak the Word of God with his authority and with his power to back it up. And so now the author's intention is to compare these two apostolic callings. Unlike Moses, who primarily fulfilled the role of the prophet or the apostle of God, Jesus also fulfills the role of the high priest of God. He joins those two callings together. As you know, in the Old Testament, even though Moses at times did do priestly works, mostly it was his brother who was called to be the priest, whereas Moses was called to be the prophet. And we know, and we're going to see this later on in the book of Hebrews, Aaron's priesthood was not complete. It did not accomplish what it set out to do in the sense that none of the sacrifices that Aaron ever performed on behalf of the people of God saved them from their sins. It all pointed to one who could save them in the future, but none of the blood that was ever shed from the millions and millions of lambs and rams and oxes and goats, none of them ever saved a soul. It all had to point to Christ. Well, in the same way, Moses, who was the prophet of God, did not give them the full gospel of God, did not give them the full understanding of God's revelation. Even his leading of his people was not fulfilled. If you remember, when Moses led them out of, the, out of Egypt, out of their bondage, he never had the opportunity to lead them into the promised land because of his sin. He died. Jesus, on the other hand, would die, be resurrected, and 
be the first one into paradise. He would lead his people and fulfill God's revelation to the nth degree. Moses couldn't. Aaron couldn't. Because of that, Moses' message itself also was incomplete. He could not point you fully to the Savior. Uh, All of his words were encapsulated in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, and all that law did was condemn you. It could not save you. Anyone who tries to go back to the Old Testament and say, I'm going to try to live as God would be pleased with me, you can't do it. There's the, I think I've told you before, uh, when we lived in North Carolina, there was, uh, it's the biggest display of the Ten Commandments in the world, just outside of Murphy, North Carolina, on the side of a mountain, huge display. And it's interesting because in the pamphlet it says that two people came to faith in Christ by seeing that display. I'm thinking, how is that possible? Because when you read the law, it doesn't save you. It condemns you. Christ was the fulfillment of the law. Moses is predicting that one is going to come after him. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read this a couple weeks ago. He says that when this prophet comes, who's like unto me, when he speaks, you better listen because God will require every word of you from his mouth. And we see that. Uh, Jesus himself testifies to that. John chapter 5, verse 46. Jesus says to the Jews, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. Same way, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, in, uh, he was interpreting the word to them after he was resurrected. And it, it, he says in the scriptures that he began to teach them all things concerning himself, beginning with who? With Moses. All of this was pointing to Christ. So Jesus is a, is a better prophet than Moses. He takes on a greater role than Moses. He is the perfect high priest. He's the perfect prophet. We'll see this again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. But now he's driving the point home and saying not only is Jesus a better prophet than Moses, he served faithfully as Moses did, but not in God's house, over God's house. We'll see in verse 2. The author states that Moses was faithful in God's house as an apostle. But in verse 5, he points out he was faithful as a servant. In other words, someone who would perform the, the rituals to, to do what he had to do in order to, to please and uh, to appease God. But in verse 3, look, look there, if you will, in your Bibles. There he says that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. In contradistinction to Moses as a servant in God's house, Jesus is over God's house because he is the creator and the builder and the founder of the house itself. Now, most of you know throughout the Old Testament, uh, the phrase is used again and again, the house of God, the house of God, the house of God. We normally associate that with the temple uh, in the Old Testament. But there's another term that's used just as often, and that's the congregation of Israel. Keep saying the congregation of Israel, the congregation of Israel, the congregation of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, depending upon your Bible translation, it'll continue to use that word congregation. But the word that's actually used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word ecclesia, which is the exact same word that's used throughout the New Testament again and again and again to refer to the church. In fact, we'll see Stephen in Acts chapter 7 refer to the Old Testament people as the congregation or the church in the wilderness. Why am I bringing this out to you? It's very important. I don't want you to miss this. Notice in this passage, there are not two houses. 
There's only one. It's the same house. The same house of God that God built in the Old Testament is the same house that is now here in this room today. The same house of God. Uh, I think with a lot of dispensational teaching out there, I think we, we missed that. Galatians 3.28, he's saying, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the same house. God built the house. Jesus built the house, but He built it in two stages. First, through Moses as a preparation for the Savior. And then finally, through Christ, we see the fullness of that. And that's why uh, you read all these passages. Romans 11 uh, it talks about, you remember that olive tree where it talks about these branches being broken off, some of the Jews that were broken off because they didn't believe. But then these wild shoots are being grafted into the vine. Why? Because it's the same house. Not a different house. Same people of God. Jews, Gentiles together. They're not meant to be separated ever. They're always meant to be one house, the one people of God. The Gentiles did not replace the temple. They were brought into the people of God and now are a part of the temple. Now, that, that, that might blow your mind, but literally that's what he's saying. Jesus is the builder of one house. He's not the builder of a second house. He's the builder of the same house that Moses was the servant in. Jesus is the builder of. Over. You follow me? To miss that, what the author is saying is something like this. Say you went to, um, you know, a lot of you are big fans of English television. You say you go to one of those big uh, castles in England somewhere, and, uh, and, and the guy at the door, you know, just dressed, you know, immaculately and, and uh, just has a great personality. He's welcoming you and, and telling you everything about the castle, all its history and story after story, and you're just enthralled with this guy and all he has to tell you. But then all of a sudden it dawns upon you He's not the owner of the castle. He's, he's the servant. And then you see the owner coming down this grand staircase. Can you imagine? <laughs> he comes down and you're like, well, I don't, I don't really want to get to know you. I, I like the servant. I'm going to stick with the servant. No one would do that. Because then you could hear the story directly from the guy who built the house, who had lived in it all of his life. It was, it's his house. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. You, you're so stuck on Moses. Moses is a doorman. That's all he is. He's pointing you to Christ. He keeps saying, here's the law, but it's not meant to say, it's meant to condemn you, to drive you to Christ. To miss that, you miss the gospel. You can't keep the law. It's meant to condemn you. And so he keeps pointing that out again and again. God, Jesus is the builder of that one house, that same family. And so he says, we know that we're a part of that house if we confess the name of Christ because it's His house that we're a part of, not Moses. That's the first point. Then secondly, in addition to holding on to Christ through our confession of who Jesus is, we're also to hold on to Christ through our confidence in Christ. Look at the second part of verse 6. There he says, and we are his house if, notice the condition here, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now what is this confidence of which he speaks? It's simply this. It's the confidence that the Spirit of God dwells within us. Think about it. If you're to have any assurance of salvation at all, it's not going to be based upon you keeping God's law, because you can't. You're not going to keep it well enough 
to where God will ever receive you. It has to be based upon the fact that the Spirit of Christ lives within you. And there's evidence of that in your life. Think about it. Whenever someone creates a house, what's the point of creating a house? To live in it. When God created the Garden of Eden, why did He create it? Not just for Adam and Eve, but for Him to live there with them. To live there. That was His purpose. Of course, they wanted to run Him out by following the devil instead, so they're kicked out of God's house. So God's not done yet. That's when he uh, establishes the tabernacle and the temple. What's the point of the tabernacle? So for God to live there with them. And yet they couldn't maintain that because they kept sinning and breaking all of the covenant of the Lord. And so again, they're kicked out of the land. They can't stay there in his house. And, and so Christ comes. It says he tabernacles among us. He, his house comes to earth in the flesh. And what do we do? Well, we kill him. And so the final stage of this, this dwelling place with God is now the Spirit of God comes down and dwells in men and women, even children, to where you're not looking for a temple somewhere over in Israel now. That's not the temple of God. It's a wailing wall, they're crying, there's no temple there. Where's the temple? It's right here. We are the temple of God. That's why this building here that you're this is not the sanctuary. I hope you're not missing that. This isn't the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. You are the saints of God. You are saintly because the Holy Spirit, the saint spirit, is in you because God wants to dwell with men. And He dwells with us. He says, if you keep your confidence to the end, it proves you are a part of the house of God. You are the temple of God. You are the new Jerusalem. We miss that. That's why all Christians are called to make themselves holy because we are holy. Because the Spirit dwells within us. We are the house of God. The temple of the Lord. And so, the confidence that comes with that when we know, we understand that God lives in us, it then gives us the confidence to go to the Lord in prayer knowing that He hears us. Because the Spirit of God within us cries out, Abba, Father. He hears us. We have the confidence then to come boldly before the, lo the, the Lord in prayer, even confessing our sins. We're not afraid of the wrath of God because the Spirit of God dwells within us. We are His house. We can go into the Holy of Holies because it's right here. The Holy of Holies somehow is now dwelling within me. I have immediate access behind the curtain to know the Lord Himself because of the blood of Christ that's been shed for me. I have access to Him. And because of that, I also know that both now as well as on the Day of Judgment, I'm not going to be judged for my sins. I will receive the mercy of the Lord. That mercy seat that was placed upon the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat is now within me. The Spirit of Christ dwells within me. And because of that, I have mercy from God. I'm not going to be judged. Therefore, I have confidence. My confidence is based upon Christ living within me by His Spirit. 
It's an amazing testimony. It really is. I th- anyone who doesn't get that, and, and, and they try to join this church, and they try to tell me, well, you know, I think I'm, I'm a good person. I'm like, eh, wrong. I try to keep the commandments, eh, wrong again. You know, I, I, I follow the gold. No, you do not follow the golden rule. You're a big sinner, and you know it. We all know it. The only how you're ever going to have peace with God and have confidence, confidence before the Lord is because the Spirit of God dwells within me. Because Christ has died for me. I'm His. I'm part of the household of God. Jesus is the cornerstone of that house. The cornerstone of the temple. Uh, and We place our confidence in Him because Everything's built upon Him. We, we can't place our confidence in ourselves. It has to be based upon Christ. That, that's why we sing those two songs we sang earlier. How firm a foundation. You saints of the Lord. Again, he's, he's not laughing at us calling us saints. He's being honest. How firm a foundation you have. It's laid for you in His excellent word. Why? He says because our confidence comes from those who for refuge to Jesus have fled. We have fled from the wrath of God to Jesus. Through Jesus, we have peace and confidence with the Lord. Same thing, in Christ alone. Christ alone, my hope is found. This cornerstone, this solid ground, Jesus, I am His, He is mine. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. My confidence comes from my relationship to Christ and nothing else. It all has to come from Christ. Those songs are so full of rich theology. But all they're pointing us to is that we are a part of the household of God through our confession of Christ and our confidence in Christ. And then third, in addition to our confession and our confidence, the writer of Hebrews says that we ought to hold on to Christ through our consideration and our concentration on Jesus. Look again at verse 1 of our text this morning. He says, therefore, holy brothers, again, another word for saints, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, he says, consider Jesus. Don't consider Moses. Don't consider the angels that he was talking about a few chapters ago. Consider Jesus. Now, it's not the best word to use today, even though I think the, it really is the best word. Um, we don't have the same meaning when we say the word consider. Most, most people, when they say, well, I'll consider it. Uh, I'll give a passing glance to Jesus, perhaps. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. The, the, the word in, in the Latin, considerare, comes from this siros, uh, which is a, a, a collection of stars, or even just one star. And it was, again, it's a sort of a, a mariner's term that someone would look to the stars to guide their direction, their course, where they're going. And you had to keep looking at the stars to see you're, you're on the right track, you see. I uh, think of it uh, during the time, just before and after the Civil War, um, or during the Civil War, when the slaves were escaping to freedom, uh, the, the motto was says, follow the drinking gourd. Some of you heard about that? Uh, the drinking gourd is, a, is the, the sign for the Big Dipper. Follow the, the constellation of the Big Dipper and find the North Star. Because in that North Star, if you fix your eyes on that star, you'll find your way to freedom. That's what he means. He says, consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him, and you will have 
freedom. You will have confidence. You will have peace. You will have joy. You'll know that you're right with God because you're focusing on Him and not on yourself. Every, every psalm that over and over again, the psalms keep talking about uh, turning your eyes toward the Lord. Every one of them is, is focusing ultimately upon Christ. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from Jesus. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, how do we do that, though? How do we? Sounds good on paper. Fix your eyes on Jesus. How do you do that? Well, we can start by praying for that type of concentration. Um, I love uh, Psalm 27, verse 4. The psalmist says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. We've just said, we are the temple of God. It's not like we can get away from the temple. It's right here. We have all the time in the world to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to to look to Him, to fix our eyes upon Him. The problem is we don't have the natural desire, the ability to maintain that concentration. So we pray it, just as He was praying. I ask of the Lord that I might seek Him in this way. Of course, in order to do that, in order to fix your eyes on Christ, you have to take your eyes off of other things. That's usually our problem, is it not? We usually have our eyes on something else. Again, Psalms talk about that a lot. Psalm 119, verse 37, the psalmist says, Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your way. Uh, the, the word worthless things often is a synonym for idols. They're worthless. They're vain. Pointless. There's no help there. Not worth spending your time on. Psalm 101, verse 3, uh, the psalmist vows, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless, but rather, again, I'll set my eyes upon the Lord. That's what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, chapter 12. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, every sin that so easily entangles us, running the race before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Of course, in order to do that, we have to discipline ourselves a little bit to seek Jesus in His Word. We have to spend time, concentrated time in His Word. I told you before, one of my favorite English words is the word linger. We have to linger in our time with God. Linger in our Bible reading. Linger in prayer. Linger with the saints. That's how you enjoy the most blessings in the Lord. In order to fix our eyes, our time, we have to linger. I I saw an illustration earlier this week. I've never heard of him before, but Norbert Weiner, I hope I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly, He's a, he was a brilliant mathematician professor at MIT. He was so fixated on solving math problems that he walked around the college campus and just tuned everything out to the point where his own students would say, hey, professor, and he just not even acknowledged their, their words whatsoever. But then all of a sudden he'd walk a few steps and then walk back and look at one of them and say, do you know where I came from? And one of the students would say, that way? And he's like, oh, good. That means I've had my lunch and I can go back to work. That was his whole mindset. But he, he was so fixated on math. Who would want to do that? 
math, so fixated on math that he could not function in ordinary life. You know, I've heard it said a number of times, even since I was a kid, the expression, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, that's a bunch of crock. I've never seen a Christian so fixated on Christ that he couldn't function. Never. Never. Back in 1873, the British evangelist Henry Varley once said, uh, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to Christ. I'd vow to say I've yet to see it too. Certainly haven't seen it myself. Haven't seen it in, in my generation. The problem is most of us just give a passing glance to Jesus. When we think of considering Christ, that's what we think. He says, you have to fix your eyes upon Christ. Not just that you can live an extra special Christian life. He says, but that's the safest way. Because we're prone to drift. Because we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. He says, we have to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, that He would be our concentration. He would be our consideration all the days of our life. It's as Robert Murray McShane used to say, usually in reference to sin, but at all times. He says, for every look at yourself, every look in the mirror, take ten looks at Christ. If only we did that. Let's look to Him now, even in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we we thank You that uh, our looking itself does not save us. We know that all the, the Israelites had to do was to look up to the bronze serpent after they had been bitten by the snakes and they were saved, but ultimately it points to the salvation that's through free grace in Christ alone. Lord, we thank You that the salvation comes by grace, but it's through the instrument of our faith. It's how we look to Him and continue to look to Him. Oh, Father, we pray that You would strengthen our faith, increase our ability to concentrate upon Christ, to know Him, to seek Him, to love Him, that even when the winds and the waves come, and even when persecution comes, Lord, help us not to waver, to wander, to drift, or to sink. Lord, help us to persevere in our confession, in our confidence, in our concentration upon Christ, we pray in His name.